This is the waves. 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 Welcome to the waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and the evolution of the meat cute, manic pixie dream girls, and airport chases. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Lily Loofborough, a staff writer here at Slate, where I write about news, culture, comedy, and politics. And you've got me, Nicole Perkins, writer, culture critic, and host of This Is Good For You, a podcast about the pleasures of life. I also used to co-host Thirst Aid Kit, formerly at Slate, where Bim Adewunmi and I talked about all the ways pop culture shaped desire. And today we're talking about the state of the rom-com past and future. I'll just come right out and say that rom-coms were hugely important to me growing up in the 80s and 90s. They were the only movies, and I'm only exaggerating a little, where women got to be protagonists. And the fantasy at the core was pretty simple, right? Like it was that someone will love you, not despite your clumsiness or your type A-ness or whatever your flaw is as a rom-com heroine, but because of it. And so the message was allegedly, it's okay to be you. But it's kind of a sneaky genre, right? Because let's face it, while a lot of rom-coms are, at least on the surface, about men realizing their mistakes and chasing the female protagonists through airports to explain their epiphanies and win them over, that's not always the deep work they're doing. Yes, it's what happened to Mr. Darcy or to Harry and When Harry Met Sally or to Mark Darcy and Bridget Jones's Diary. But so many of these movies were ultimately about gently but firmly disciplining the woman too, and maybe a little bit more insidiously. In Sweet Home Alabama, Reese Witherspoon's character gets disciplined for daring to abandon her small-town self and succeed in the big city with its shiny men and its better fashion. You've Got Mail punishes Meg Ryan's character by costing her the work and the shop that was meaningful to her. She was settling, I guess, or she had chosen the wrong life, or she was too attached to her mother or something. Anyway, her reward is that she gets manipulated into falling in love with the guy who took all of that away from her. I'm not saying this formula doesn't work. I love You Got Mail, (laughs) despite myself. Like, I imprinted on these really early. Nicole, you're an expert on these tropes. Why do you think the rom-com worked as well as it did for as long as it did, despite being mocked, let's face it, relentlessly by men and by tastemakers? Okay, well, let me just say that I am a romance novel junkie, okay? I love romance and love and all the sweet and steamy parts in between and all around it. Rom-coms are obviously a kind of extension of romance novels in a way. We get to watch love form between a couple, where it takes them, what it helps them discover about each other and themselves, And I think rom-coms endure because they give us hope, right? Those of us still looking for our person or those of us who may have found someone but need to be reminded why we fell in love with them in the first place. Most rom-coms tend to help us ignore or forget about all the big picture misery of the world. So for about one and a half hours or two hours, it's okay that we don't have the answer to climate change or police brutality. We're just watching two people fall in love. And as for why rom-coms get mocked so much, it's so much because of, for whatever reason, things like love and being vulnerable with someone gets labeled as something for women. And whenever women and girls like something in large numbers, people have to find a way to shoot it down. It's just a sad fact of life. Of course, there's a certain formula to rom-coms, right? And people think that formulaic is bad, despite the fact that almost all art forms get categorized, right? So in order to fit into a particular genre, something has to follow a certain criteria. 
All genres have a formula of some kind. So why is it that romance and rom-coms get bashed for it? And when you ask people, okay, so what exactly is it that makes rom-coms so bad about following, you know, certain bullet points, but not other genres? No one can give you a, a good answer beyond, well, you know, it just sets up unrealistic expectations. Okay, well, so do action movies for telling us that some 60-year-old man is going to hunt down terrorists for kidnapping his daughter or for killing his wife, okay? Like, we know that that's not going to happen, but nobody has a problem with it. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Heist movies have beats, right? Everything has beats. Formulas exist for a reason. And the pleasure of a formula is that you're looking forward to seeing how it's going to handle a specific part of the story, right? Like, that you know is coming. Like, will there be a fresh take on the airport chase? Coming up, we're going to talk about what the rom-com became. Hey, Waves listeners. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out our other episodes, too, like last week's about women in the fitness industry. We're talking about romantic comedies, what made them work and what made them fail. Nicole, which were some of your favorite rom-coms and why? Oh my goodness, I have so many. Um, Obviously, there's When Harry Met Sally, The Princess Bride, Something New, Waitress, uh, Sweet Home Alabama, Boomerang, 27 Dresses, The Best Man, It's Complicated, Something's Gotta Give, Leap Year, which is actually really bad, but I love it anyway. Um, And then on the newer side of things, I love Always Be My Maybe, The Lovebirds, The Long Shot, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and even Knocked Up. I I love the movies that tell us, you know, just to look under our own noses for love or the ones, you know, where people don't need to change so much as they just need to communicate better, get out of their own way. Like when Harry met Sally and the loved birds. I love the unexpected pairings that come in something like The Princess Bride or uh, Sweet Home Alabama. Those are the things that I I love. I feel like at its best, the rom-com says something that isn't actually fully reducible just to romance about how people live versus how they could live, right? There, there's there's something it's articulating about whatever present dissatisfactions there are and whatever possibilities exist. Like, I can admit every problematic thing about You've Got Mail with Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, but it sticks with me because it captures something incidental but transcendental, I think, about, like, the details of how people enjoy things and enjoy life. Like, loving fall, you know, that bouquet of freshly sharpened pencils. Dear friend, I like to start my notes to you as if we're already in the middle of a conversation. I pretend that we're the oldest and dearest friends as opposed to what we actually are, people who don't know each other's names, and met in a chat room where we both claimed we'd never been before. What will NY152 say today, I wonder? I turn on my computer. I wait impatiently as it connects. I go online and... My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got mail. I hear nothing, not even a sound on the streets of New York, just the beat of my own heart. I have mail from you. One of my favorite things about rom-coms, especially the ones that get squirrely and weird, is how they start bending the frame around the likability trap, by which I mean... You know, the thing where every woman in a rom-com has to be flawed, but like in a cute way. (laughs) It was so mandatory for so long, I think, right? She's clumsy, but she's adorable. (laughs) 
And like while you were sleeping is one of my favorites because Sandra Bullock's life there is so genuinely lonely that she makes truly big, bold, and like creative mistakes. Those are my favorite instances of the genre, I guess. You know, I watched rom-coms in the 90s, again, because women were allowed to be protagonists, and that was exciting to me. But there was generally a compromised quality to the story that kept them a little bit passive anyway, just because of the way the formula sometimes works, meaning that they kind of have to be discovered, right? The meet-cute depends on coincidence. (laughs) There's not always, like, a ton of agency, necessarily. So the rom-coms where the woman really gets to be a protagonist, flawed, active. Those were the ones that stuck with me. And Nicole, I know that you're not a huge fan of Julie Roberts movies. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) But (laughs) this is one reason I really love My Best Friend's Wedding in particular. I really like that despite the sneaky disciplining (laughs) that happens in a lot of rom-coms, in that one, it's just overt. Julia Roberts' character deserves to be disciplined in the way that male protagonists do. She's actually going on a fairly epic journey. She's a schemer, right? And she's a desiring agent who's doing truly shitty things to get what she wants, which is absolutely not how the rom-com plot usually works. And it's interesting to me that it kind of blew my mind when I saw it when I was, I don't know, 15 in theaters, that she doesn't get what she wants, (laughs) you know, and she has to atone for being a kind of a crappy person, So it's an interesting riff on the rom-com's formula because it opts out of conflating the happy ending the genre requires with marriage. She ends up dancing with her best friend who's gay. And although you quite correctly sense that he is, like most devastatingly handsome single men of his age are, you think, what the hell? Life goes on. Maybe there won't be marriage. Maybe there won't be sex. But by God, they'll be dancing. But her assertiveness and her lack of passivity, I guess, almost catapult her out of the rom-com genre into a different category. I don't know. I still think, though, I still think that it counts. And I think My Best Friend's Wedding was one of those very few movies I can remember where the woman gets to do truly wild, morally compromised things that aren't cute and they're not endearing. (laughs) And sometimes it felt to me like even as the rom-com started to become like a parody of itself, aspects of it did start to warp in these kind of interesting ways. Like the genre sometimes on rare occasions became a site where women who still weren't allowed to do much as protagonists were getting to explore agency you know, I'm morally vexed in kind of interesting ways. I have a major gap in my rom-com expertise because I am not a fan of Julia Roberts. Um, but I did see My Best Friend's Wedding, I think maybe like 20 years after it came out. And I was really surprised by how much people love it since it doesn't have that happily ever after that we've come to expect from rom-coms, right? Where the the couple gets together and it seems like they have their whole life ahead of them. We see someone doing some morally shady stuff, but she doesn't get rewarded for it. And that's what rom-coms have taught us since like the 80s with all these movies where we see people basically stalking their love interest and we're just like, oh, that's okay. It's fine because it's just how much he loves her, right? But, you know, it's all forgiven and encouraged. But here, Julia's character does not get her man and she actually makes us empathize with her competition, right? 
Cameron Diaz's character. Uh, and so I do appreciate the way it disrupted rom-com expectations, but I was just like, I don't know why it's considered a rom-com, but I, I have been thinking more about it than like rom-coms where the woman chooses herself. And I thought of Under the Tuscan Sun, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I don't know if it's considered a rom-com because it's more about what happens after a woman goes away and tries to put back the pieces of her life. She thinks she's, you know, in love with someone and that person treats her terribly. And then she just makes this decision to choose herself. And then that's when we see the possibility of love happen at the very end after she's kind of chosen herself. And so I wonder if that's what My Best Friend's Wedding is also about, like what happens when the woman chooses herself. I think too, though, that the movie makes him eventually... (laughs) Out to be such a weirdly unworthy object of obsession. I'm talking about Dermot Mulroney, the, the best friend in question who she's she's trying to marry or tr- whose wedding she's trying to break up. That you're right. Like, you do end up feeling for Cameron Diaz's character, despite how odd and extra and saccharine she is. Kimmy, I don't know, she's like a sophomore in college, we find out or something. Like, in hindsight, I'm so interested that you watched that only five years ago because I'm like, <laughs> watching it as, at my age now, I'm like, oh, there is a lot of sketchy stuff happening <laughs> Yeah. She's 20. She's 20. She's a sophomore, I think, and she's giving up her future as an architect for this guy. So I agree with you. It's a movie that forms part of the story, I think, of how the rom-com started morphing, right? Because there's a really interesting arc that the rom-com itself kind of went on. (laughs) Like, you know, the the formula kind of like became this juggernaut for a while where like so many rom-coms are being produced. And then I think it kind of flattened out. We'll talk more about that history. But before it all crashed and we didn't get any more rom-coms for a while, there was this weird interim period where it was still sort of around. But men, not content to dominate every other genre, started becoming the protagonists of rom-coms too. Remember this whole phase? Yes. (laughs) Like, as good as it gets. And Jerry Maguire are, like, both early examples. And there's something about Mary and then the Apatow machine nabbed onto the genre and, like, made it all about, I don't know, homosociality and dudes, like, navigating the transition from pot-smoking friend groups to, like, oh, now we have to go to the heterosexual pairing and it's kind of depressing, but we have to make our peace with it. Anyway, what do you think about that phase? (laughs) Well, before before we get too deep into that, I do want to say that I do like some of the brocoms, I guess is what we can call them, like knocked up, 40-year-old virgin, forgetting Sarah Marshall, she's out of my league, even something like 17 again, and Fools Rush In, I think, are all more about the men and and their journeys, uh, as opposed to like love and the couple itself. So I do love those movies. What I didn't like about a lot of of this uh, rush to center men and make them the protagonists and, you know, trying to attract men in the audience is how gross they sometimes were with their physical humor. It was like, okay, this is for the guys, right? So we need to add more vomit. We need more poop. We need farts. And I'm just like, please, can you grow up? Can you please grow up? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's deeply fair. Well, okay. First of all, I'm going to say, yes, I love forgetting Sarah Marshall too. And like most of the Apatow brocoms, like I can do without, but I consider that to be like one of the best rom-coms around truly. I just think it's a classic. And I totally get what you mean about the fluids, but I have to admit, I can't get too mad about it myself. 
I sort of loved the diarrhea scene in Bridesmaids, for example. I don't know. Wedding dresses get so fetishized and so do brides and they're so beautiful and perfect. I just kind of loved that whole disgusting mess. stick with the brocoms for a second because I really want to hear more about what you appreciated them for. Like, do you feel like they helped articulate something useful about uh, gendered vulnerability or about men and love? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Like, you, you when you talk to a wide range of men, you'll always find some who'll confess that they actually do enjoy watching rom-coms with their girlfriends or wives, but they feel like they can't admit it because we, and when I say we, I mean all of us, get told that girly things are so gross, right? And brocoms have the exact same beats of a more traditional rom-com, only with more weed and belching, right? Guys can see, in these brocoms though, that guys can see that no one is asking them to become someone brand spanking new. Uh, for example, in 40-Year-Old Virgin, Andy, as played by Steve Carroll, freaks out because he thinks Trish, Catherine Keener, wants him to get rid of all his action figures and collectible items, right? But she loves that he collects those things and that he has a story to go with each of them. She just wanted him to look at his hobby from a new angle, like how he could share that love with other people. But he was so averse to change and he was so afraid about what it means to no longer be a solitary person in this world anymore that he could not see that. And I think Brocom show men that they can be open and vulnerable and it doesn't make them into someone else. It actually enhances them. Maturing into love and companionship doesn't mean you automatically have to start wearing a suit every day and, and going to a job at a bank. It just means that you have other people besides yourself who love you and you have to do some like thoughtful, emotional work to nurture that love. So many of these rom-coms are basically Pygmalion and Cyrano remakes, and they all tell us constantly, you can change, but it's the real you, the real person behind the charade that I love. And, you know, men don't have to be afraid of love at all. Wow, that is a, that is a stirring defense of the rom-com. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm sobered. <laughs> all right, we're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Nicole and myself on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment, Is This Feminist? Where today, Nicole and I are debating whether cartoon makeovers of M&Ms and Minnie Mouse are feminist. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. After going on its own weird arc in which it has been disciplined and punished, mainstreamed and parodied and abandoned, the rom-com is arguably back. In a variety of guises, from the Bindi Project to Crazy Rich Asians to Palm Springs to Emily in Paris, Nicole, where do you think the rom-com is now and what's it doing? Well, I think the quick answer is we're seeing a bit more diversity in who gets to be seen as desirable and worth falling in love. We're also seeing more women sticking to their goals and fewer women having to sacrifice everything for love. I love what Netflix is doing with their original rom-com content where the women are taking chances on themselves and moving to new cities, sometimes entirely new countries, to find themselves. And if they happen to find love, then yay, but it's not the 
only reason that they leave. Uh, And I personally, that's one of my favorite tropes, the new city, new love trope. Beyond giving women the hope of a new life and starting over, it's also a way to keep the clueless, clumsy woman image alive. In falling in love, the protagonist trips and falls and she's dropping everything. She has to be rescued, but she also gets to prove her expertise in renovating the inn that she's won, um, you know, because she is like a, I think she's like an environmentalist or some of some sort. And so she gets to like put in solar panels and ways to reduce water waste and things like that. So we get to see her be very smart, even as she's doing something like dropping nails in a hardware store. I do hope, though, that we get to see more age, body, and sexuality diversity as the rom-com continues to age and grow. It's obvious that it's trying, but it seems like rom-coms still mostly care about people who are in their teens to early 30s, that they're thin and able-bodied when there are so many different people who fall in love every day. So there's still a lot of work there that needs to be done. And I also hope we see more contemporary romance novel adaptations hit the mainstream. Hollywood loves a historical romance, but there's so much out there worthy of being on screen. Yes, life beyond Bridgerton. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the form has exploded again, like frequently into serial form, which makes total sense now that there's streaming. Jane the Virgin is obviously a telenovela linking at a bunch of tropes that have a lot of rom-com DNA. And Emily in Paris is such a good example, I think, of like what you're describing as like, you know, the new city, new life thing. It's a total confection whose mild conflicts I find forgettably escapist and deeply soothing. But... I just wish I found her passions more interesting. (laughs) Like, I've been wondering if, like, maybe there is an idealism gap or something between the love vocabulary that was happening in rom-coms back when, like, I was being shaped. (laughs) And now, and I'm not sure if that's true or not, because it could be, again, maybe I'm just old. But I was thinking about how only you, uh, the Marissa Tomei movie, which is also a fantasy about an American in a European city, opens with... Tomei's big moony speech about platonic soulmates and how comparatively romantic and silly and grand all of that was. So, Plato tells us we began as circles. And when we strive to be like the gods, we were punished by a thunderbolt that struck us and cut us right down dead center in half. And we scattered to the ends of the earth, searching and searching for our other half. And all Plato was saying... So if we just stop and go with the flow and follow our destiny, it'll lead us back to each other. Compared to like Emily in Paris's gifts for posing on Instagram and like enthusiastically coming up for campaigns to sell bad champagne or like mediocre crap. I thought Palm Springs was interesting for how it dealt philosophically with boredom and repetition as a part of love, kind of like Groundhog Day. But It does really change the premise when you have two people endlessly cycling back into each other and trying to deal with immortality. Like, that really does interestingly tweak a love story when it's not just the one person (laughs) who's cycling through, but when it's two, you know? And yet, despite all of that, I can't say that any of those have stuck with me the way the rom-coms of my youth did. Like, I'm trying to think of love stories that have spoken to me fairly recently, but, like, none of them are funny and, like... At once, it just definitely does not count as a rom-com. <laughs> Neither says marriage story or, like, I don't know, a star is born. Like, the big romances, I feel like, have been a little bit detached from comedy. So 
has the rom-com genre like in its recent iteration gotten less for lack of a better word, romantic? Like, have our cultural discussions of love gotten more pragmatic, maybe? Or am I just too old for to fall for the formulas that I used to find totally swoony? What do you think? One of the reasons I love the, the lovebirds, beyond the surprising chemistry of Issa Rae and Kumail Nanjiani, is that the action begins with their breakup, but they still have to solve this huge mystery while working together and ultimately giving their relationship a second chance. Rom-coms need to refresh themselves in this way and speak more to those of us who might be jaded by love and life, especially as audiences mature and are no longer going into love so wide-eyed, you know, we've become a very, you know, very cynical people, I think, uh, over the last few years. I loved To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which surprised me because I'm not really into teen stuff, but I love this vulnerable beefcake that was in Peter Kavinsky. Like, show me a guy who is losing his cool over a woman. Uh, You know, of course, I'm thinking about the hot tub scene during the ski chip where Laura Jean is telling Peter uh, how sweet he was for doing something. And he gets really shy from the compliment and splashes water at her like, oh, geez, come on, get out of here. Someone who has such good grades, you can be so dense sometimes. What? Yeah, I wanted to sit next to you, Large. I even packed the snacks. I asked Kitty where to find those uh, those yogurt drinks you like so much. The Korean grocery store is all the way across town. Yeah, I know. So if I went all the way across town to get you something that you like, then that means... You must really like yogurt? And it was so touching because it's so rare to see a man blush or show that he's moved by someone paying attention to him in a particular way. Like if he's not coded as a nerd or a loser or something like that, right? So it's very rare to see this man who is supposed to be a very confident, attractive man, and he knows that he is such, but he is undone by a woman's attention. And we need more of that. We need to see more of the smooth guy who gets kind of put back on his heels by the attention of a woman. I think that's also part of why the long shot worked with Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. Seth's character, he wasn't necessarily very smooth at all, but you know he openly recognized that he was outclassed, but he was willing to step his game up to meet Charlize's character where she was, as opposed to trying to knock her down a peg, which is what often happened in the rom-coms that we grew up with in the 80s or 90s, where the woman has to come down, right? Like the woman who's very successful has to lose it all and and become a joke in order for her to be relatable like how how rewarding it can be to see like the smooth guy's facade break for a second there's tremendous pleasure in that and I actually am blinking when I try to think of many examples of it I'm curious what you think about another aspect of the rom-com in this sort of new kind of more complicated experimental form like you've said you've said elsewhere that you were really struck by how chaste rom-coms were in the 90s and 2000s like how comparatively sexless in ways that maybe elided some of these moments of like vulnerability or you know (laughs) where smoothness breaks 
And I'm curious to hear you talk more about that. Yeah, that's something that I've noticed over the years is how afraid of sex and physical intimacy rom-coms actually are for the most part. Whenever we do see sex on screen, it's mostly for the sake of humor, which makes sense, right? Because there's a strong comedy element in them. But it's not always there to show that this couple is sealing their connection or they're expressing their connection. And when Harry met Sally and they finally have sex, they finally get together, we laugh at it because we see Harry shell-shocked expression in the mo- in, you know in the morning after, especially in relation to Sally's contentment. Like she is very satisfied and he is just looking like a deer in headlights. But then you have something today, like Always Be My Maybe, where we laugh at their clumsiness, but it's also really kind of hot to see how frantic they are to get each other's clothes off again. And I wish rom-coms could be better at showing intimacy as connection and not just a, oh no, this was a mistake. And then making that the conflict or that the start of the conflict once the couple has finally found each other. And I think this is part of why Today, the uh, contemporary rom-com has taken off in the romance novel industry because we couldn't get that good mix of sweet and steamy sex that we wanted on screen. Uh, So the authors just started writing them. The authors who were fed a full diet of When Harry Met Sally and, you know, Something's Gotta Give. And they've taken all this kind of stuff and they're just like, okay, now I'm going to write in the sex that I didn't get from those movies. We wanted sex with love because it's okay to have sex with love if that's what you want. But Hollywood seems to have a really hard time with that. And I definitely think that is a matter of gendered bias. Um, you know, the pe- the people who are still making the big money decisions about what gets greenlighted and, you know, those final scripts and stuff are still older white men who get uncomfortable at the idea of a woman's pleasure being centered. Uh, I can't help but think about Blue Valentine, which is not a rom-com, but it was given an NC-17 rating because of a scene where Ryan Gosling goes down on Michelle Williams. And one, she enjoys it. Two, she has an orgasm from it. And three, it looks hella real. <laughs> it, was, it was just like, whoa, what's going on? Do y'all have something to tell us? Um, but there's also a scene in that movie where Ryan's character is being really coercive and Michelle's character does not provide enthusiastic consent at all. And then there's another scene where an old boyfriend of hers ejaculates inside her without her permission. And those two scenes were not consensual at all non-consensual manipulative scenes and they were not an issue but it was the scene that was of absolute undiluted pleasure that caused a problem right and I think that's the kind of attitude that is still prevalent in all the respective powers that be that make up uh, Hollywood and it's part of what holds I think sex scenes or even just like really good makeout scenes hostage in rom-coms and you know I know I'm going to come off as like this huge Seth Rogen stand here and I guess I am <laughs> but I'm also thinking about uh, in Zach and Mary make a porno we get to see Seth and Elizabeth Banks find real intimacy together in the middle of making a porn scene in a way that I thought was handled very well within the confines of a bro-com so I think it is possible to have sex sex in a rom-com, but it's just a matter of like giving people the room to do it. I have thought a lot about like what sex scenes do dramatically and like which like what really good ones do. And I'm so glad you brought up the when Harry met Sally scene because that in my opinion was bad as a sex scene but incredibly effective as drama. Like I think there was something uniquely devastating about their post-sex scene 
specifically in the way he transforms and becomes this fake version of himself right in front of her eyes, like reducing them both to these tired, courteous roles where he's, I'd like to take you to dinner if that's all right, or whatever he says, you know? (laughs) And the horrible way the hookup happens too is really interesting where it's happening in comfort mode because she was crying, which was such a thing back then, right? And I think that speaks to the chastity that you're talking about. Like (laughs) a woman weeping, (laughs) being really upset was an opportunity for a hookup because she, you know, her defenses were down. (laughs) There was, there was a certain amount of like, you know, I don't know, virgin horror stuff happening there. And so, so, so crying kind of somehow made it okay. Um, And yet I sometimes think that that one Harry met Sally scene nailed a bunch of things that some more explicit scenes these days miss. And I'm thinking again of, I guess, of Emily in Paris, because the sex scenes in that don't do anything, in my view, but establish, hey, that was pretty good sex, which is fine, but also a bit flat. Like, it just doesn't do very much for the story or even for their development as characters, except that they want to have sex more. But on the other hand, I think that you're right. I think that some of the more choreographed sex scenes that we get these days, and I'm thinking about actually the consummation scenes in Outlander, which is not a rom-com, but which I think belongs in this discussion because of the ways that it did so much sex choreography do incredible work showing how good sex gets built over repeated tries. What do you think about that? I did bail on Outlander because I was tired of all the sexual assault and threats of sexual assault because I feel like it it has to be that balance again, which, you know, like going back to the Blue Valentine example, where it's like, yes, you can have a really nice, beautiful, intimate scene, but also here's a scene where somebody's going to be threatened, you know, with assault. And I just, I just felt like, ugh, why do we have to make sure to bring the woman, you know, who is enjoying the scene down a bit? I love the wedding day episode uh, because we did get to see Jamie's progress and how open he was to learning and improving and just, and trusting this more experienced woman where, you know, she was not punished because she knew more about this thing. She actually was able to incorporate her experience into this um, relationship and they both got to benefit from that, which again is very rare, right? It's very rare to see that. Um, I would personally love to see more ranges of physical intimacy highlighted in rom-coms. And intimacy can be funny and a fun part of connecting, especially uh, for adults. You know, we don't have to see TNA. We don't have to see nudity. But I think there should be more acknowledgement of people who have, you know, touch as their love language. Um, You know, the big gestures of running through the airport are great. But what about the thrill of a hand in the small of the back? I would love to see more of that. I can think of a lot of really great small moments of physical intimacy, but they're not really in rom-coms. They're in romantic dramas. um, And I'm not sure why comedies don't allow them more. There's been so many rom-coms where I've seen that the couple, they don't even kiss until the very end of the movie after they finally overcome all of their obstacles and declare their love. And I roll my eyes every single time. I think that is the most unbelievable part of rom-coms to me. I want to see the near kiss or maybe there's a kiss that changes everything. I want all of those kisses. Give those to me. No, this is a a long way of me saying, no, I don't like how chased rom-coms have become. Uh, especially if it, if they're like a, a romance novel adaptation. Um, you know, a lot of people complain that romance novels are just porn for women. And then when we see them on screen, they're very sanitized. And it's like, well, you got to keep the hot parts too so we can understand why everyone is so, you know, wild about romance in the first place. It's not just the 
unrealistically very tall, handsome, you know, hero. It is also the the good kissing and hand holding and stuff. So we want to see that. Before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. Nicole, what are you loving right now? Okay, so since we're on this this topic of romance and rom-coms, I'm going to recommend a uh, romance novel that came out in 2020, and it is called The Worst Best Man by Mia Sosa. And it is about uh, wedding planner Carolina Santos, whose fiancé abandons her at the altar and she's really upset about it but then later she gets this really big opportunity to create like this package for a hotel but she's going to end up working with the best man and brother of her ex-fiance and his name is Max Hartley so Carolina who goes by Lena and Max have to work together and then it comes out that Max may have been the person to tell his brother to not go through with the with the wedding and now they have to work together so it's this really cool sweet and kind of steamy enemies to lover kind of contemporary romance the worst best man by mia sosa awesome okay i read i read a really um interesting novel recently called one in me i never loved by uh carla gelfenbein who's a chilean writer it reminded me a little bit of The Hours and that it's kind of structured around three different stories um, about women in different time periods, roughly. But the one that to me is most interesting is is the one that is about Gabriela Mistral. Gabriela Mistral is like the Nobel Prize winning poet in, in Chile, whose lesbianism was denied until really very, very, very recently. Some of the love letters that she wrote to her lover, Doris Dana, um, have been published. And they are they make for really fascinating and wild reading. One of the three stories that, that Gelfenbein sort of weaves together in, in this novel, One in Me I Never Loved, is particularly from Doris Dana, the lover's point of view. And she is somebody who tends to get written out a little bit of these histories. Just because She was a private person. She wasn't super interested in, like, you know, a ton of legacy making, especially because the Gabriela Mistral sort of machine in Chile was so intensely structured around making Gabriela Mistela kind of like mother of the country, virginal figure. <laughs> um, she was not really supposed to have sex, <laughs> let alone be a lesbian. So so I thought this novel was really interesting for, for the way in which it took up Doris Dana's story in particular and included some excerpts from those letters and um, kind of like explores different phases of love um including a woman whose marriage is has for all intents and purposes ended it sounds really interesting i'm gonna check that out all right well that's our show this week the waves is produced by shana roth susan matthews is our editorial director with june thomas providing oversight and moral support and we would love to hear from you email us at the waves at slate.com The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. 
Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.